You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How goes it, sir? I am doing well, although my voice uh, apparently can't handle two back-to-back hour-and-a-half classes because I'm, I'm starting to get scratchy. Ah. Also, That's a lot of class. It is, it is. I mean, it's it's a normal Tuesday-Thursday schedule. I'm just a weenie. I, I don't know. People, I don't think people who don't teach understand what it's like to to teach for three hours in a row. That's rough. I, I was also yeah. very amped up about the text in both classes, so I was hooting and hollering more than I should have been. <laughs> a Gilmore camp meeting. Yes, indeed. Sweet. Well, also with us, and having already spoken, is Michael Farmer. Uh, what's new with you, Michael? Nothing much, David. In Woodstock? Woodstock, Woodstock for now. Woodstock, for now, Georgia. Is... Yeah, hopefully we're moving soon. Okay, <laughs> it's like, is Woodstock changing its name? <laughs> okay. Woodstock's about to fall into the sea. <laughs> which is really something, because we're about six hours from the sea, but... Right, right. Oh gosh, uh, so, uh, some colleagues, uh, we were jesting last week about an earthquake along the San Andreas Fault, and then suddenly all the rest of the continental U.S. sinks into the ocean, and California stays. Sounds wonderful, though, doesn't it? <laughs> It'd all be over in 15 minutes. We'd never have to worry about it again. Yeah. Bring on the uh, the sinking of America into the sea. It's not like we wouldn't deserve it. We could be Atlantis. We could be the next Atlantis. The lost city of Atlanta, just like on Futurama. <laughs> Excellent. Well, before we get into this week's topic, what's going on in the network? We've got a number of episodes. We've got a uh, Christian feminist podcast on the graphic novel Persepolis. Uh, we've got a uh, Christian humanist profiles interview that I conducted with theologian Stephen Fowle. And I'll go ahead and correct uh, my uh, oversight last week. My interview was with New Testament scholar Bruce Chilton. Uh, I don't think Bruce probably listens to this show, but Bruce, I apologize for forgetting your name. And Core Curriculum continues to cook with Plato's Republic. Uh, are there any, any, blah, any other shows? I, I can't remember. No, we already announced the uh, Batman episode of Sectarian Review, Yes. Right, and there's not a uh, before they were live this month because Josh and his family had to leave China because of the coronavirus. But last time I spoke with them, they're all safe and sound in the continental U.S. Good to hear. That's a huge relief. Yeah. 
And and I don't know, probably our listeners didn't know this, but our former intern, Ellen, also works at that school and is also safe in the continental U.S. now. So good news, at least for Christian humanist adjacent people. Yeah. Well, this week, uh, our topic is the some of the lesser-known works of uh, St. Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, you know, we've all jammed to Cur Deus Homo. We've all rocked out to the Monologion. But what about these, the prayers and meditations? Um, probably new to most folks. They were new to me when I first found them. Never heard anybody mention them. Never heard anybody Although, quote them. T- to be fair... Everything is new to you when you first find it. Dude. <sighs> yeah. I've been caught in a tautology. <laughs> well, Michael, just for that, uh, could you give us a quick biographical sketch of this Amstone fella? And while you're at it, since we're delving into his back catalog, um, what are some of those greatest hits? Yeah, he's called Anselm of Canterbury because he was the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, but it took him a long time to get there. He's not English by birth. He was born in, I believe it's pronounced Aosta, in what is now Italy. It wasn't Italy at the time because Italy as a country doesn't really exist until I think the late 19th century. And his family was displaced by all the squabbling and jockeying for position that's going on in the Italian city-states in the late 11th century. Uh, His father was apparently not a great guy. He was, depending on the source, he was either violent or just really bad with his money. But Anselm's mother was very pious and very competent. She held the family together even when the father was not able to. And his father refused to let Anselm enter a convent for his education when he was 15 years old. And so in response, Anselm goes and lives a life of kind of mild dissipation for a little while. He bums his way through France, as many dissipated people do for many centuries after this. (laughs) But when he's 27 years old, his father dies. And after a period of discernment, Anselm was able to enter the monastery of Beck, which is in Normandy. And he became an abbot there just a few years after he entered it. And Beck, Uh, became a great center of learning during this era, era, uh, thanks largely to Anselm's efforts. So he was very successful as the abbot of this monastery. And it's there that he wrote his most famous works, including the Prologion, which contains what's come down to us in history as the ontological argument, which is almost certainly the best, uh, best known piece of Anselm's work. Should I try to explain the ontological argument, David? <laughs> Didn't we do an episode on proofs for God existence way in the way back? We did, we did. but it was, was it was ago. Aquinas. It was Aquinas's five proofs, and he doesn't believe in the ontological argument. Oh, that's true. Yeah. To which Mark the Twain ontolog- replies, believe in it. Heck, I've seen it done. <laughs> the ontological <laughs> argument says, in effect, that God is the, gr- the being greater than whom none can be conceived. And that must mean that he exists, because if he didn't exist, we would be able to conceive of a greater being, to wit, one that existed, because everything that exists is better than everything that doesn't exist. And, you know, there's a million variations on the ontological argument, and I taught it for about five years before I had even a perfunctory understanding of how it works. And thankfully, this is not an episode on the ontological argument. So there's all sorts of stuff out there on it. I'm sure there are a million podcast episodes if you don't want to read stuff, uh, but we're not going to 
we're not going to talk about it here. Thank goodness. Yeah. It is where the atheists get their flying spaghetti monster. Yeah. So so there's that. Well, and, and as usual, they've been outdone by a pre-modern Christian because the Gonilo, who is a fellow monk of Anselm's, writes a writes a letter talking about well if this if if this works for god why not say that there's an island greater than which i can conceive of no island and blah 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 so as usual uh the new atheist is just recycling old material <laughs> excellent meanwhile um william ii refused to appoint a successor to Lanfranc, who used to be the abbot at Beck and had become the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he died. And William II of England didn't appoint a successor because he wanted to keep the monastery's lands and profits for himself. Uh, but then he fell very seriously ill, and he blamed his own behavior for that in, the, in a great medieval fashion, and he nominates Anselm to be Archbishop of Canterbury. And as Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm is a force for reform, and in particular, he's a force for the power of the church over and against the state. And for that reason, he's exiled from England for several to- uh, several times. William II kind of goes back and forth on whether he admires Anselm or not. Uh, William II is said to have said, I hated him before, I hate him now, and I shall hate him still more hereafter. Uh, which is almost <laughs> as good as that, that line that, uh, that uh, what's his name? Trotsky supposedly said about MacDonald that everyone's entitled to stupidity, but Comrade MacDonald abuses the privilege. I think William II's might be even better. While he is in Canterbury, he writes the Curdeus Homo, which I know we'll talk about more later. And he finally ends up winning the battle between church and state authority shortly before his death, because just before Anselm's death, Henry II agrees that the king should not be able to appoint bishops in the Catholic Church. So this thing that Anselm has been fighting for, for his much of his professional life, uh, has come to fruition, and Anselm shuffles off this mortal coil. What have I left out, David? Oh, gosh. Not, uh, not, not my, I mean, obviously there's, there's there's more that he does and more that he writes, but that's still hundreds of percent more background on Anselm than I think most people get, which is probably the weirdest class at the beginning of an intro to philosophy course. You know, that 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 one little bit where, you know, the ontological argument just gets sort of tossed out as uh an earlier philosophical strangeness, kind of in the way that pre-Socratics are treated these days. And- you, you know, David, I really think that the ontological argument might be the best argument for the existence of God because it's completely unfalsifiable. It's just, it's so difficult to comprehend that it's very difficult to disprove. Mm-hmm. I- Maybe one day we'll do an episode of the ontological argument, although I hope not because if we do, somebody's going to have to read Kurt Gödel. Uh, and apparently his version of the ontological argument involves so much mathematics that your head will just explode when you try to read it. Well, that just sounds super fun. Oof. <laughs> well, anything anything you want to add to the bio, Nathan, before we move on? To... Uh, just to highlight something that Michael already hit is that, you know, a lot of times when people talk about uh, especially the Reformation era, they talk about medieval Christianity as a monolith and the supremacy of the church as something that was just given. What Michael reminds us of is that, first of all, it's a relatively late development. 
uh, and that by no means was it a historical necessity. Uh, everything is contingent, uh, and we do well to uh, remember that. Right. Well, and, and not just that, but the, the, sometimes people get the sense that, oh, if the church hadn't been in charge, it would have been some sort of religious democracy. And, and that's just not true. No, that's if the not church hadn't been true. In, if, if the church hadn't been in charge, the state would have been in charge, you, you know? And, and I know crown. that they hadn't really invented states right. in the way that we've got states now. But, yeah, right. I take your right. point. Right. And, and I, I know that I know that for much of the late Middle Ages, those two things are entwined in some ways that might make us feel uncomfortable. Uh, but the truth is, I think you could probably do a lot worse than people like Anselm making big decisions for society. And I'll note that we're recording on the day of the National Prayer Breakfast. Let the one with ears hear. Lateraling quickly. Uh, <laughs> so based mostly on that chunk of proslogion that we've talked about, which uh, may or may not be the most persuasive argument for God's existence, and some pretty shorthand characterizations of Curtius Homo that you might have picked up here or there, uh, Anselm often gets characterized as a rather dry theologian, um, interested in some pretty rarefied philosophical speculation and legal analysis. He, he just doesn't seem cuddly, right, by the standards of our day. So how would you describe the theologian that we're reading in these particular works and the sort of theology he's doing? So I'm going to begin with a reason why you shouldn't listen to anything I say for the next several minutes. Uh, when I read this work in seminary, uh, Cur Deus Homo is a dialogue between Anselm and Bozo. Uh, and so because I grew up in the Midwest in the 1980s, I could not get out of my head an image of a Benedictine monk arguing with a clown with giant red hair and a big red nose. Uh, so, <laughs> but in this dialogue, a, a few uh, big characteristics really emerge uh, that, that identify Anselm's theological style, if you will allow. Uh, one of his big concerns is, a, is what I call a theology of scale. Uh, now, I think some people have overplayed this, but it is definitely there in the text that Anselm is very concerned with the differences between a wrong done to an equal, a wrong done to a superior, and then, uh, analogously, a wrong done to a finite superior and a wrong done to an infinite superior. And so his theology of sin always has to do with uh, the one sinned against and that, that entity's or that name's uh, relationship to the one sinning. And so, uh, you know, the reason uh, that the angels fall, for instance, uh, is because they fail to recognize the gap between finite grandeur of angels and the infinite grandeur of God. Uh, humanity is created and they are closer to the angels than they are to God. Uh, but once again, you know, they, they lose sight of that gap between the finite and the infinite, and therefore they also end up sinning. One of the, you know, oddities of this for me, because I spend so much time teaching and thinking about Job, uh, is that, you know, the gap going the other direction really doesn't come into the theology that often. So the passage I'm referring to is from Job 7, uh, starting in verse 17, and I'll, I'll read from the New Revised Standard Version, which listeners, you know, if you're picking up from last week, you'll know that uh, 
Dwight McDonald finds this, you know, a, a second degree monstrosity. Uh, what are human beings that you make so much of them that you set your mind on them, visit them every morning, test them every moment? Will you not look away from me for a while? Let me alone until I swallow my spittle. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of humanity? Why have you made me your target? Why have I become a burden to you? And it goes on from there. Uh, but again, what Anselm is focusing on in this dialogue uh, is that God has honor and God has standing and God has dignity that is different from the ontological health or well-being of God and therefore can be injured in a way that God can't. Uh, so, I mean, you know, that is the root of the problem of sin. Uh, the solution of sin, and this is going to be something, again, that uh, our listeners will find more or less familiar, uh, is that because the dignity of God is infinite but vulnerable, uh, any injury to it cannot be repaired by human effort because humans are finite. God is infinite. Again, this theology of scale uh, and so, therefore, only God can repair it, but because God is infinite and human beings are finite, uh, God is not the kind of entity uh, that can do that repair. Only a finite entity can actually undertake it. Therefore, only a human being can do it, and yet a human being cannot do it. Therefore, the incarnation in this uh, philosophical theology uh, is... A free decision on God's part, I'm being very careful with my vocabulary here because Anselm is very careful with theological vocabulary. The incarnation is a free act of God that bridges, if you will, the infinite and the finite in a way that makes it possible for human beings who are finite to be reconciled with God who is infinite. Uh, so, you know, those are kind of the broad strokes we're going to talk about this, you know, to some extent later on, but uh, one of the things that you notice when you read Cur Deus Homo is that you don't get the density of biblical illusion that you associate with a writer like St. Augustine. Uh, you know, it, it remains in a fairly abstract register, uh, and I think, David, that, that's one of the things that leads to this uh, reputation for dryness. Uh, and also leads to this idea that his theology is rooted not in biblical revelation, but in medieval law. Honestly, I think that that is an unfair characterization. I think that he is writing in a vocabulary uh, that is not deeply allusive uh, the way that Augustine is. But I think that there's precedent for that. I mean, you get something like this, for instance, uh, in Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, uh, there's not a whole lot of biblical allusion there. And in fact, some people would say there's none. I would say that there's, you know, echoes of Bible in there. Uh, and yet it remains a profoundly uh, Christian philosophical work. So, uh, you know, that those are the big uh, tendencies that I focused on. I mean, uh, what would you uh, add to that, David? I wouldn't, I, I, I think you, you, you've, you've brought in a lot of, a lot of the features that, that scholars have kind of um, focused on, things that are undeniably there, but they've kind of become um, sort of like the two or three features of a politician's face that end up becoming their entire identity in a caricature. 
Yeah, that's a good uh-huh. image for it. Yeah. Um, it's not that, you know, that, that politician doesn't have that nose, more or less. <laughs> but that, oh, or know, the hair, if we're going to go a little bit more recent. Yes, we, we, can, we can go there, too. Um, but there, there are other features as well. And so focusing on, focusing on Curdeus Homo and focusing on Proslogion, um, I mean, it, it does create this, this dry theologian, but it's because... Uh, he's genuinely concerned with something that, well, I think that you've shown is also a, a, a biblical concern, which is the how does how do you rate, relate the the human um, imminent with the divine transcendent? You know, even if Job is working that equation from the other side, um, that's still a that's still a deeply biblical concern, even if he's not, you know even if Anselm is not all through his works necessarily citing the chapter and verse um, that he's interacting with. Right, and if it weren't there, Job wouldn't be responding to it. Right, right. Um, I, I'm kind of baffled that people call the the proslogion uh, dry. Now, the only part I know is the part I used to teach from the ontological argument, but that part at least is structured as a meditation a la the confessions addressed directly to God. I mean, it's not poetic the way the confessions is, but Augustine is a once in a generation literary talent. And it's not fair to blame Anselm for not being, I think if you compare him to other medieval theologians, and I'm thinking of Thomas Aquinas in particular, I think Anselm is, is not dry at all. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very moist writer. (laughs) Nice. Well, I wonder whether that's it's it's generated that that impression of proslogion is is generated by people by the fact that m- many folks' encounters with it is limited to this one particular section that they've actually probably only read and understood in a summary that was focusing mm-hmm. on the the philosophical on the the uh, you know what are what are the the stages in his argument. Right, it's reduced to syllogistic bullet points. Yeah, I mean, of course, that's and it is very difficult to understand. But I, I don't know that I would conflate difficulty with dryness. I mean, yeah. Derrida is very difficult to understand, but I would never call him a dry writer. Yeah, I mean, are, are you going to call him moist too, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do recommend reading the whole Proslogion. By the time you get to the end, it's practically an altar call. It's a, it's, it's just amazing. Um, yeah, cer- certainly, certainly doesn't, I, I think, deserve the reputation that it gets from the place it holds in philosophy textbooks. Well, turning from the dryness, I, I, I will, I, I don't know, we're going to the heat. Is it a dry heat? I'm not sure. Um, Anselm's meditation on coming judgment is, uh, one that I passed on to y'all. I sh- actually, I should say something about what these meditations are. They were written. Um, they were written by Anselm uh, at the request of friends who uh, who were. He had written one, shared it with some friends, and they asked for more. Um, basically, kind of sustained uh, uh, sustained thoughts, sustained contemplations of particular ideas um, addressed to the soul or addressed to God 
um, a, a more devotional kind of writing uh, than than the philosophical dialogue of Cur Deus Homo. Um, a lot of these, uh, a lot of meditations have accumulated under the heading of the Meditations of Saint Anselm, and I first encountered them in a Victorian translation in which there were a lot of these. Prepping for this episode, I discovered that somewhere in the 1920s uh, there was a French monk uh, who argued apparently quite persuasively that almost all of those meditations that I had read as Anselms were not authentically Anselmian but were actually produced by his students and imitators. So uh, the ones that we're looking at today, um, even though uh, what we'll be linking in the show notes is to that older translation, it's to the portions of the older translation that show up in the Penguin Classics edition of the Prayers and Meditations of St. Anselm um, that was uh, published or translated by Benedict Ward. Um, so I would recommend that one, but we'll also make... Uh, the free version available to when we link it. But uh, Anselm has a meditation on the coming judgment, and it seems like pretty standard hellfire and brimstone if you just sort of skim it. Um, and I mean, a lot of us know that sort of preaching or think we know that sort of preaching. Um, and another f- familiar sermon uh, in that vein, Sinners in, a hands, in the Hands of the Angry God, Jonathan Edwards, uh, might also be familiar to you as well. So, Michael, um, how is Anselm treating the subject um, in ways that match the hellfire and brimstone, hellfire and brimstone we expect, and how much might be different in interesting ways? Well, it's been years since I read that Edwards sermon, so you might have to correct me on it, but I think they're quite similar. Anselm is emphasizing human sin, and he definitely emphasizes it. But he's doing so so that he can later emphasize divine grace. The whole point here is not how wretched we are, but that how wretched we are makes God our only hope. And my memory of the Edwards sermon is that he's doing something very similar. Yeah. So Anselm says that my sin is so great that from a distance, my life looks like one great big sin. Um. And in fact, the best I could possibly say about my life is that it's uh, it's been unfruitful. Um, so like the best you could possibly say is that it's not out and out bad. It just has failed to be good. And in the end, Anselm says, that really remounts to, to saying the same thing. Um, and this is a problem because for Anselm, sin makes you scarcely a human being in, in a real sense when you sin, you're betraying your own essence. And so um, to have your life be one big sin is to say as much as you've made yourself inhuman. Um, so much so that we really don't even have a sense of how bad we really are. Uh, he says that on the day of judgment, we're going to become aware of all these sins that we weren't aware of. And in fact, many things that we think of as being virtues are actually going to turn out to be sins, and the the true depth of our depravity is going to be revealed to us at this day of judgment. Uh, And this is a problem because 
God can't tolerate even a single sin um, in, in a formulation that will be familiar to those of our, our listeners who, who have an evangelical background. God, God can't tolerate even a single sin. So the fact that we're, you know, laden down with all these sins that we don't even recognize as sins, that's a real problem. All of this means, though, that I have to rely on God for forgiveness and freedom. And, and his memorable phrase is that you should trust in whom, trust in him whom thou fearest. So he sets up this, this portrait of humanity as deserving the wrath of God. And then the solution is to turn to the, to the entity, the being, who is so wrathful. Um, and so there's a kind of paradoxical shape to this meditation, the way there is, I suspect, to a lot of hellfire and brimstone sermons. And, and one of the things that was interesting to me about the meditation was that he, he says that right now God is all love, but on the day of the last judgment, his attitude is suddenly going to shift to be uh, all wrath. And so, you, you can, I mean, the implication is you better talk to him now while you can still get forgiveness instead of waiting until then when, when he's not going to be interested in giving it to you. Am I misrepresenting Anselm? No, I don't think so. Uh, I love that last paragraph, though. Uh, it has some really great phrases. Um, as a stylist, uh, I find him very interesting. He loves, the, um, he loves to invert phrases. Uh, he loves to set up paradoxes. He loves to uh, vary in an idea. You know, say some say the same thing three or four different ways with slight variation. There's a kind of proto Chestertonian quality to to his prose. I agree. Yeah, yeah, it's delightful. Uh, you know, he he asks. Who is called? Uh, who is he who is called Angel of Mighty Counsel? Who is called Savior that I may call upon His name? But it is He Himself. He Himself is Jesus. The same is my Judge, between whose hands I tremble. Um, yeah, and then the invocation of Jesus to be His name. Um, for what is Jesus except to say, Savior? Nathan, what would you toss in here? I think it is notable that, you know, some of the stereotypical moves, and by the way, the stereotypes come from actual texts, that you expect in uh, a hellfire and brimstone. And by the way, I mean, as soon as you said brimtone, David, I, I started imagining a ska band called Hellfire and the Brimtones. But um, some of the stereotypical moves that you see in a poem like Dream of the Rude, where Jesus is the figure of, judgment and wrath but then the cross becomes the mediator between the sinner and jesus or you know kind of the stereotypical protestant move uh you know once you've moved once you've removed non-divine mediators then the father becomes the angry face of god and then jesus becomes the you know it's all right face uh anselm i mean just pushes all his chips in he says no i mean there's only one god and that god is the wrathful one and the merciful one and, you know, just, just leaves that paradox on the table. And I, I, I like that. I love that, too. I feel that if I ever got the chance to uh, fill pulpit or something, I could probably smuggle chunk, chunks of this in and get some Southern Baptist amens. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, I like this one a great deal. Um, 
and I, I think it bears comparison with uh, with Edward's handling of the subject too. But um, that's because oh yeah, although on... he doesn't tell the kids to quit being squirrels in the back pew. <laughs> Which I have to confess, because I, I'm a bad person, is my favorite part of that Edward sermon. Yeah. Oh, yeah, one of the most vivid memories I have as a child is uh, the pastor calling out his son on the front row. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I will say, David, too, I mean, this meditation has a very modern feel, and you can definitely see how modern evangelical piety, to be sure... Uh, but a lot of other Christian piety as well uh, has taken an Anselmian shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think, too, it helps to show, you know, this is this is a tone that that is, you know, older than camp meetings, older than, you know, powdered wig Jonathan Edwards, older even than Calvin. Um, oh, absolutely. Is, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> didn't get invented yesterday. Uh, the other meditation, which we looked at is, uh, titled meditation, uh, well, a, a meditation on, uh, the redemption of mankind or on human redemption is how Benedict Award remember, uh, renders it. Uh, and it is, very much like uh, the Cur Deus Homo that you sketched out some uh, some of the main elements of for us, Nathan. So in this meditation, what is he do? It, what is he doing that is Cur Deus Homo? What is he doing that goes beyond um, what the more familiar dialogue does? Well, I'm going to start with the stylistic uh, because, as I said, Cur Deus Homo will not have a whole lot of biblical allusion to it. Uh, it is something, like I said, that seems to be following the precedent of uh, something like the Consolation of Philosophy that's doing deeply Christian thought, but without a whole lot of explicit uh, biblical allusions. This text is just shot through with biblical allusion. I mean, you can't go three lines without finding a phrase from the Bible. So it, it, it's a demonstration, I think, and a pretty convincing demonstration, that he is doing something intentional in Cur Deus Homo rather than simply lacking something as a stylist. Uh, so I think that that's, it, it's really, really good to read these texts next to each other, and I, I definitely have a different image of Anselm as a stylist now that I'm familiar with this text. You still get a lot of overlap. Uh, you still get a, 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 an abiding concern with what is due to God. Uh, you still get a lot of what I would call legal thinking. Uh, so, I mean, you know, what is the legal obligation of the finite to the infinite? Uh, what is the, you know, proper attitude uh, of the finite, you know, when benefited by the infinite, so on and so forth? And you also get something that I think is implicit in the Cur Deus Homo, but becomes a lot more explicit here, uh, namely a kind of euthyphro question that is floating around, namely that God has an obligation to satisfy justice. And he's very careful to say that all of this is a free act on God's part. He always wants to uh, maintain and insist upon the liberty of God. Uh, which is something that I think is, is something very important theologically. Uh, but you still get a notion that 
there is some kind of rhetorical distance at the very least between God as an agent and justice as a purpose. In other words, in order to satisfy justice, God does something. And I'm very careful not to say God must do something because he cautions yeah. against saying that. But um, the other thing that I, that, I, that I want to note, you know, as a structural matter, and I found this just wonderful, uh, is that, you know, this meditation uh, doesn't stay in that uh, philosophical register, but it ends with a prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, and, you know, it's something that we saw in the, in the uh, meditation on the final judgment as well. But uh, this strikes me as something that is, uh, I, I would say, I'm not going to say less dry because I think we've already dispensed with that, but it is something that is less detached and a lot more rooted in uh, the worship. The worship. It's a lot more rooted in worship. There we go. <laughs> See, all this mm-hmm. caution with my uh, syntax, David, is making my syntax break down. Uh, it is an act of prayer. It is an act of worship. It is something that is emerging from the heart of Anselm uh, much more visibly than the Curdeus Homo is. Uh Lots going on in this text, David. I mean, what other bits would you want to highlight? One thing that I think is really important is, even though he covers a lot of the same ground as Curdeus Homo, like you like you rightly say, and he's he's very concerned with uh, what what we might describe as legal um, the legal ramifications of redemption. Um, He's very interested in talking about uh, what um, I think what 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 justice entails for God's activity, and he's part of the way that he expresses that is is with the discourse of fittingness, which is different from the discourse of of uh, compulsion or oughtness. That uh, God does not stand in relation to justice in the way that the human does. Right, so there are no necessities that are higher than God, but there are certain ways for God to operate that are fitting for divine justice. Yes. One thing that I do appreciate about this text is that, you're right, Curdeus Homo is explicitly eschewing scripture reference. Um, It's one of the things that it sets out to do from the very beginning. Um, This text, in some way, folds a lot of it back in. Um, with illusion and with language, um, there's not necessarily, you know, a whole bunch of footnotes, you know, with stuff in the margin saying this verse, that verse, the other verse. But that's not how the that's not how the the fathers and the medievals cite the Bible anyway. <laughs> right, right. And and if you're looking for something more like confessions, this text is a lot more like confessions. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I appreciate that element of it. It's 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 in 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 some cases I w- I would like to get a lot of folks who I've heard characterize Anselm's position in Curdeus Homo in particular ways. Um, I'd like you know sometimes I'd like to just say hey go read his meditation on human redemption and take a second swing at what you just said. What about you, Michael? I was interested in his kind of subtweeting of ransom theory. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Sorry, I mean, An- 
Anselm's one of the biggest proponents of what's, what sometimes gets called penal substitutionary atonement. This notion that Christ died our death for us to restore the justice that we violated. An alternate theory is that Christ died to kind of snatch the world back from the, the hands of the devil. And Anselm just won't have any of it, although he doesn't exactly come out and address anybody openly. He, he says essentially that the, the ransom theory would involve either man owing a debt to the devil, which he doesn't, we, man owes a debt to God, or God deceiving the devil, which doesn't work because God doesn't deceive anybody. I don't know if those are good arguments against ransom theory. I haven't read enough ransom theory to know, but uh, I, did, I did appreciate him making them. Yeah. Penal substitution is so uh, controversial in in certain circles that it it's almost refreshing to see somebody uh, offering it up. Yeah, i i I have heard um, I've heard Anselm's positions characterized as a satisfaction as something logically distinct from uh, penal substitution. The difference being that while Christ's death does pay to God what the sinner owes, that which the sinner owes and the penalty which the sinner undergoes is seen as a debt of something that is good and valuable, as opposed to the undergoing of something that is painful and uh, uh, penal in that sense. Gotcha. So I, I I have heard that distinction made. Um, in 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 either in either case, it is a um, the the sinner is due something as a uh, justice imposes something upon the sinner, and Christ through what he does satisfies that which justice demands. Um, there's still that logic there, but if if you look um, at one of the things I appreciate about the way that he frames this. Um, is that you, you can have an argument that says Christ satisfies the demands of justice on behalf of the sinner that doesn't necessarily make it dependent on uh, that which is done being being the suffering so much as the perfect offering of the perfect self through the suffering. Something like mm. that. I'll say that the first time I ever heard of Anselm uh, was I, I had read, I must have been in college, I'd read Brennan Manning, and, and he took issue with the substitutionary atonement. And he said, you know, uh, a 12th century, 11th century monk named Anselm invented that out of whole cloth, and nothing in the church says you have to accept it, and there wasn't a whole lot of people before Anselm who promoted it. And I just, I don't think that's true. I think it is probably true that the the church allows for different understandings of the atonement, but I don't think Anselm is inventing this one. Yeah. And and I would I would add to that Michael that I mean a lot of recent Christus Victor and other, you know, so-called atonement theories, although that phrase I think has more baggage than what it's worth, are responses to Anselm to pretend that they were there and, you know, Anselm invented this new thing that ignored, you know, a very robust previous tradition gets the cart before the horse. Right. Yeah. 
I would encourage our listeners to go listen to a Profiles interview I did several years ago with Richard Beck. Um, the book is called Reviving Old Scratch, and we talk quite a bit about the competing theories of the atonement. And I, my, my recollection is he comes down saying pretty much all of them are necessary, that if you just pick one of them, you're getting kind of a, a warped view of what the atonement was, when in fact it was really all of these things simultaneously. Yeah. That's one, another thing that I really appreciate about this meditation on human redemption, is that even though Anselm is uh, spending a lot of kind of literary, you know, territory in the in the essay on presenting an argument that I think he's 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 you know proud of having been able to articulate in the way that he did. Christ's death is also an exchange of of you know, taking our death so that we receive his life, um, you know, in language that's very much like, uh, you know, that of Athanasius of Alexandria. I mean, he does also talk about one of the things that Christ does is to liberate me from the enemies that oppose me. You cast them all back. You forbid in evil spirits to attack my soul. So there is there is also a, a subduing of evil powers that comes through redemption. Um, there's several different things that you know the redeemer ac- accomplishes for the redeemed um and even though his theory of satisfaction uh, that that legal approach is central it's far from the only the only thing that's that's there and this is food for the soul is another is another point that he makes in here meditating on this feeds you <laughs> and yeah uh, I, I I appreciate the 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 breadth of that that he brings to it. Well, prayer. Uh, uh, Anselm, uh, like Jesus, is uh, requested to teach people how to pray, <laughs> and he complies by writing uh, by composing prayers. Uh, for his his friends and followers, uh, there's also some surviving um, some surviving letters of Anselm, uh, in which he's he's actually functioning as a, a spiritual director to different people, um, some in the church, uh, some lay people. But Michael, uh, how does Anselm's prayer to Christ? Uh, how does that frame our relationship to our incarnate Lord? Well, it emphasizes our insufficiency to do the right thing or even to want to do the right thing. That's what he gets at right at the beginning. Um, But then he asks that God accepts what we're able to do and to give us the ability to do more, to kind of meet us where we are, even though we're so far from where we ought to be. And it asks us to recognize that any good that we have comes from God. And um, when we ask God, for things what we're really asking for is the is is for us to love him more than we do as we'd expect after reading the meditations anselm emphasizes god's grace so this isn't about what we deserve it's about what god is good enough to give us and um, it asks god to perfect the virtues that he has implanted in the person praying and then 
in a in a kind of extended middle section, he talks about our distance from God on this earthly plane, such that Anselm fits neatly into what we've called the, I mean, we didn't invent it, but we talk about it from time to time, the homo viator tradition. Pilgrim yeah. man, the, the idea that um, human life is a kind of journey from, from birth to eternity, and so this world is not our home. You, you definitely get that sense here. And, and to, to the extent that Anselm almost seems angry that he wasn't given the chance to meet Christ in person like the apostles. Yeah. And the appropriate response to that is to uh, keep the passion and the resurrection constantly in mind. And, and a lot of this material um, in the middle of the prayer reminds me of Ignatius of Loyola's practice of the quote-unquote application of the senses. Mm -hmm. In prayer, where part of Ignatian spirituality is to imagine yourself in scenes from the life of Christ, either as a person or even like as an animal, what lo looking on, but to to kind of bring bring those scenes alive in your imagination. I get the sense that Anselm would approve of a practice like that. Yeah. And ultimately, he seems to me to be suggesting that our suffering in life, including the suffering of our exile is a means of meeting God, that God meets us in that suffering and that loneliness, in that feeling not at home. And uh, that's that's how we um, how we get deeper in our relationship with him. Very cool. Marjorie Kemp does uh, something similar to this, too. I, I don't know if you all have read the, uh, the book of Marjorie Kemp lately, but she... not since grad school. Yeah, I've never read. OK, it. There, there's there's. In addition to some seriously questionable things, um, there are a few past. Is she the one who imagines Jesus' penis? Uh, or is that Julian of Norwich? I I can't say I remember that super vividly. But if I had to guess, I'd say Marjorie. Yeah. Um, Marjorie does imagine herself um, as the as Mary's midwife. During uh, during Christ's birth, she imagines herself as the one who is wrapping the baby in swaddling clothes, considering, you know, that these little arms are going to grow up and to become big manly arms um, that will carry a cross and be nailed to it. Uh, it's it's a fascinating passage, um, huh. but very much like um, the what what Anselm wishes here. Or, and is kind of doing as he's wishing it. Yeah. Anything you want to add to uh, our, the comments we made so far about this prayer, Nathan? Uh, only that, you know, the, the part where, I mean, you guys see anger, I see something more like a biblical lament. Uh, mm -hmm. so I'm, or a uh. psalmic lament, specifically, right? You know, so uh, it's not necessarily a... Uh, it's less like Job, I'll put it that way, and more like the Psalms. So with Job, yeah, there's a genuine anger at God for wronging him, right? Uh, but here, it's more of a uh, a regret that things have happened the way they are and a call for God to set them aright. Uh, right. so, That's a better way to put it than anger. Oh, and I, I don't think it's a bad way to put it. It's just, like I said, I, I think that, you know, once again, these prayers are just so elusive at every turn uh, that again, a, a reader only familiar with Curtis Homo almost wouldn't recognize this writer. <laughs> yeah, I mean the way that he borrows language, also just to you know pull in another uh, another biblical source, um, 
the the way that he pulls in the language of the Song of Songs is uh, kind of meets between the two. It's it's lament, it's plaintive, but also framed in the language of um, uh, a lover who feels neglected by the absence of the beloved. Right, and, right. And yeah, that there's 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 a lot of that in here, and I know we we often think of that associating that with um, someone like um, Bernard of Clairvaux, but I mean with good reason. Yeah, with good reason, <laughs> but. You know, Anselm Anselm's doing it too. You know, hundred years before Bernard gets there. The last two readings that we looked at were a couple of prayers that are very clearly matched, very very clearly meant to be um, read together. Uh, a prayer for friends and a prayer for enemies. So Nathan, what do Anselm's prayers teach us about the nature of friendship and the nation, uh, the nature of Enemyship, enemyhood, enemy—I—I I don't know. Enmity. Enmity. Yeah, that sounds really great. And how should we pray for these two categories of people? Save me from myself. <laughs> so first of all, I am reminded once again, and I realize I've been ringing this bell all episode, but I'm reminded again just how Anselmian modern piety is, because I came into this uh, prayer for friends expecting something akin to Aristotle or Cicero. Uh, but I've come to realize that modern reappropriations of Aristotle and Cicero on friendship are responses to this Anselmian piety. So within this prayer, uh, the friendship is not constitutive of identity the way that it is in books eight and nine of the Nicomachean Ethics. But instead, uh, you know, this is an individual praying to God. The main focus is that relationship between the individual and God. And to the extent that this person prays for friends, it is almost incidental that he happens to like them more than he likes other people. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, if, if you come in expecting, you know, something akin to Paul Waddell or Stanley Hauerwas, you have to realize that those guys are writing in response to Anselmian piety. Uh, you know, this is, uh, again, if you've got in your mind a history in which individualistic piety emerges out of the 16th century, this is going to throw you for a loop because <laughs> this it's hard to get more individualistic than this. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I, I found the enemy's prayer also just fascinating uh, because it is this meditation that we saw earlier uh, on the sinfulness of the soul brought to bear on the phenomenon of enemies. And so he prays to God, uh, don't listen to my prayers when I'm praying like those Psalms. Uh, you know, I realized that I asked for, you know, their babies to be bashed against rocks. I realized I prayed for you to break their teeth with rods of iron, but I was mad. So, you know, don't, <laughs> don't take that too seriously. Uh, so it's interesting. I mean, in some ways, uh, you know, Anselm of all people is anticipating some of the psychologizing readings of those imprecatory psalms that I tend to associate with liberal and progressive exegetes of the psalms, right? Uh, now, the second half of this one is even more fascinating, I think, uh, because he prays specifically not to make himself an enemy to other people. Don't make me the one who makes them stumble. 
And when I am unable to forgive them because I know I'm not going to be able to forgive them all the way, forgive my shortcoming in forgiving them because I know that, you know, I pray for you to forgive my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. But I'm Mm -hmm. really crappy at that. So please forgive me for not forgiving, for not forgiving, for not forgiving. So it becomes this wonderful recursive meditation. And, you know, as I said, uh, I'm just reminded at every turn that, uh, you know, what I often slip into thinking of as a modern piety is very Anselmian in its form. So, uh, David, what other features would you want to highlight here? I, uh, I just to name the thing in the friendship one um, that I, I I think I think this is what you were looking at um, the uh, I pray your mercy upon all men yet there are many more whom I hold more dear since your love has impressed them upon my heart with a closer and more intimate love so that I desire their love more eagerly I would pray more ardently for these that so so that that there's not any kind of description of what constitutes the relationship of what makes those people friends and others not friends it's just that there are some that are more impressed upon Anselm's heart with a closer and more intimate love and what david just read there is about all the content you get about the friends yeah i you know and in some ways I I find that comforting because while the Aristotelian analyses of friendship are useful for thinking about am I to my friends what I ought to be, which of the people I associate with are the best sorts of friends for me, you know, who, which relationships are constituting me in better and worse ways, um... The reality is I'm often I'm often in relationship with people who aren't necessarily the best for me and I'm not the best for them and my you know and you know the heart wants what it wants and so forth um you know they're they're you know good or ill they're my friend and this you know, by by saying, you know, th- this is my disposition towards this person. I am inclined to favor them in my prayers simply because I'm inclined to favor them. And perhaps this is a sign of, you know, my perception of their genuine goodness for me and my genuine charity for them. Perhaps this is part of my, you know, limited preference for those who are like me or amuse me or who flatter me or... I don't know, but it just acknowledges I I have a capacity for friendship that may be better or might be worse, but it directs my affection in particular ways. And the prayer begins by praising Christ for being the best of friends. And so it takes all of those feelings of friendship and says, God, you're a better friend than I am. Be a better friend to my friends than I am. (laughs) And I, I, I kind of, I kind of like, I, I, I appreciate that, um, you know, as one who's constantly think about, thinking about the ways in which um, he fails to be uh, in relationship always what he ought to be. Um, you know, that that's that's just the tenor of all of Anselm's prayers. I am not what I ought to be. Let your grace cover that. 
What do you see, Michael? I am fascinated by the way that he he prays that his enemies will love God and love one another, and he prays that as a punishment for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is I mean, kind of beautiful because it's what he's been trying to do this whole time too. There's a, a kind of pur- purgatorial uh, sense of that. So I I really appreciated that. It was almost funny. Yeah. I mean, his sidekick is Bozo, so maybe we should expect some light humor. <laughs> well, guys, I have been just steering this conversation in the directions that I was interested. Whoa, are we in profiles now? <laughs> yeah. But here on Christianist Primitive Profiles, we like to give our guests the final word. <laughs> well, no, this is the last question where I say, hey, what do you see that I haven't singled out already with a question? What stood out to you that I didn't ask you to look for? Um, we talked about his kind of love of paradox, and one of those is that God demonstrates his power um, through weakness and humility, which is right out of Paul, but yeah. I really like the way that Anselm puts it in, uh, is it the 11th meditation? The one on human redemption. Uh, and so the virtue, and so the virtue of thy salvation is the virtue of Christ. And where is it? Where is this his virtue of a truth? Quote, horns are in his hands. There is his strength hid. Yes, horns are in his hands for those hands are fastened to the arms of the cross. But oh, what strength is there in such weakness? What grandeur in such humility? What a worshipful in such contempt? But because in weakness, therefore it is a hidden thing. Because in humility it is veiled. Because in contempt it is concealed and covered up. Oh, hidden strength that man fixed to a cross should transfix the eternal death that oppressed the race of man. That man bound to a tree should unbind the world which had been fast bound by perpetual death. O veiled omnipotence, that man condemned with thieves should save men condemned with demons. O virtue concealed and covered up, that one soul given up to torment should extricate innumerable souls from hell, should as man undergo the death of the body and destroy the death of souls. He's not saying anything there that most of us haven't heard many times, but he says it so wonderfully that uh, I wanted to repeat it. Yeah, that's a lovely bit. What about you, Nathan? The funny thing is, my part is from the same paragraph, just the first half of it. <laughs> and it is this uh, this hermeneutical maneuvering that he does. Uh, and it is a, a call to his own soul. Uh, and I'll, I'll start, you know, a couple sentences into that, that same paragraph. Bite the honeycomb of the words that tell of it. Suck their savor pleasant above honey. Swallow the health-giving sweetness. Think and so bite them. Understand and so suck them, love and rejoice and so swallow them, gladden them thyself by biting, exult in sucking, fill thee to the full with joy by swallowing. Where and what is the virtue and the strength of thy salvation? Christ, Christ assuredly has raised thee up again. He, the good Samaritan, has healed thee. He, the good friend, has redeemed thee with his life and set thee free. Christ, I say, Christ is he, and so the virtue of thy salvation is the virtue of Christ. So, I mean, in that, in that relatively brief, uh, but you know, you hear the stylistic of it, right? It's uh, it's repetition with variation. Uh, he puts his soul in the role of the old Testament prophet of the parabolic, uh, victim in the good Samaritan, uh, parable. Uh, you know, he doesn't hold the scripture at arm length, arm's length, pardon me, uh, but makes the soul a character in it. 
Yeah. And, you know, again, because my academic background is first and foremost in, in academic biblical studies, uh, I always appreciate reminders of these different ways to read the text. Very, very cool. Well, that is all the conversation we have for today, gentlemen. What are we talking about next week? Next week, uh, we're going to be taking on a uh, an essay by W.E.B. Du Bois from the 1890s, 1894, 1895. There's some disagreement on that. Called The Afro-American. Uh, it's an essay that I discovered here recently, and I was astounded, as I'm often astounded when I read Du Bois, uh, that he is having conversations that I didn't think happened until much later. Very, very cool. Well, I, Good times. Well, I look forward to that. I hope you do too, dear listener. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation, a uh, discussion of some of Anselm's uh, back catalog. Uh, you can we, The links to our readings will be on the show notes for our blog when those go up. Our blog is christianhumanist.org. Uh, you can uh, comment there uh, on those show notes. You can also send us comments to our email at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Um, you can tweet at us uh, at, oh gosh, CH Radio Network. Is that it? Good job. All right. On Twitter. And we've got Facebook too. So, you know, follow us there. In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs on behalf of uh, Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, wishing you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippek. And I'll leave you with the words of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.